Selling at 1,000. The three of you together. Now, that's a picture only Charles Adams could draw. Good evening, Mr. Captain. Before we start calling each other names, perhaps you'd better tell me yours. I haven't had the pleasure. You disappoint me, sir. I was just going to say that to her. I've always understood you were a pretty shrewd fellow at your job. What possessed you to come blundering in here like this? Could it be an overpowering interest in art? Yes, the art of survival. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 2B. Or 2.2. 2B. 22. 2.2. Wave this of is the tw- future. Actually, this is episode 22. Yeah, we're, we're going, going back. We had, we re- Readjusting our list. Yeah. You know, we just got to start back over, forget the last, like, the 900 through 88. What if we did 78, that? Jesus, my math. What if we jumped the shark like that? We're like, oh, we forgot one. We got to redo the list. And since we're redoing it, all these... <laughs> Might as well just start from the top, yeah. right? Well, Tom, after years of not even obeying their own law, uh, Italy has finally abolished film censorship and will now allow the film body, the film studios of Italy to self-govern. Um, you know, the film censorship played a role in Salo, Under 20 Days of Sodom, uh-huh. and Last Tango in Paris being banned for years in Italy. And, you know, kind of the religious veil now has been, and government veil has been lifted off of Italian film. I don't think it's going to have a major impact on things. There hasn't been a film censored in Italy under this rule since like 1998 or something like that but you know it's it's always good to see censorship going away especially while china censors everything yeah i mean it's it's good for that it's, and doesn't have an olympics anyway. those two yeah, those two particular movies well they currently do they may yeah. not <laughs> very soon um yeah i mean those two particular movies are interesting cases like i think salo is actually more interesting than last tango and last tango has become way more culturally problematic because it's it's still culturally relevant for some reason. Yeah. Maybe just because it's a Bertolucci Brando thing. Um, but yeah, the actress. I've never it, seen it. I've never seen it either because I don't, I've never cared about Me anything either. that either of those guys have ever done. Maybe that's bad on us, Armand White, but like, I'm no. okay. No. Exactly. I'm okay. I've seen a bunch of late career Brando stuff and it is not the super score. It's not super cool. Um, you know, an Italian film system might not exist for many more years because the conglomerations that are streaming continue to scoop up films. Mm. Uh, the Tomorrow War, the Chris McKay live-action directorial debut, he directed like the Lego Batman movie, co-directed the Lego movie. Mm-hmm. It's Chris Pat, Pat, Chris Pratt coming from the past and being taken to fight an alien. It looks like it's a sad attempt at Edge of Tomorrow, but that's been sold to Amazon by Paramount, and, you know, Netflix <laughs> decided that Knives Out 2 and 3 were worth, what, $469 million? Yeah, $469, nice, million dollars. And we've confirmed just for those two movies, right? Yeah, just for those two films. Yeah, I don't I assume maybe they get the intellectual property so they can create, like, 
runoff series, maybe. Possibly. Or they can do what Netflix does and create animated versions of these. Oh, absolutely. There, there will be. There will be. Um, but yeah, there it is. And apparently, there's going to be "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret" film. But we're not going to talk about that because I don't know why that is a thing. Who? Oh, is that a Beverly Cleary thing? I guess. so. Is that a Beverly Cleary? Book? That was a Beverly Cleary book. Yeah. It's Rachel McAdams and Benny. I don't know if that's the same relation. I know I felt sad. For, I felt sad for people that really liked Beverly Cleary, but I never. I said she died. She recently? died. Oh, okay. But I I never read is any. Is Judy of her books. Bloom still cooking? I never read any of her Kicking? books either. Cook, my, cooking my, and kicking. My words are not coming to me today. No, because she could be cooking. Yeah. If she's alive, she's probably cooking. Like The Rock. He's definitely cooking. He is. Well, Tom, the uh, last two films on my list require uh, very specific beers. Mm-hmm. Um, right, we, you know, we're going to have back-to-back Mario weeks. It's exciting mm. because Tom beat me up. Pushed me into the corner, held me by the throat, and said, I get to do my number one last, you son of a bitch. Seems like the right thing to do. He just started burning me, too, and I was like, okay, okay, it's fair, it's fair, it's fair. Um, both of these beers are of the same style. One is, uh, by my definition, the best beer I've ever had, and that's the beer we're going to have today. Mm-hmm. I should have introduced the other one first. The other beer is the beer that has a real importance to me uh, upon my moving to New Haven. But mm. they are both... A style of beer we haven't had, but we talk about how much we love sours quite a bit. Um, and, you know, we're both sour guys, and this is a, my favorite kind of sour beer. It is a f- mix of a Flemish Red, which is my favorite kind of sour beer, okay. and an Ode Brune. This is from OEC. Don't remember what OEC... No, I do know it. It stands for Ordinum Excentrienta Coteris. Out of Oxford, Connecticut. Uh, my favorite brewery. That I think, well, not my favorite. What I consider to be the best brewery in Connecticut. Huh. Um, they almost exclusively do sours. This is Antioch. It's an, like I said, an eight percent Flemish. Look at that. We're pouring this actually in the glasses. You can hear it. Highball glasses, because that's how it's supposed to be done. Look at that color. It's a nice caramel brown hmm. with a slight tinge of red. Interesting. Interesting. That nose is screams that this is going to be a sour bomb. Hmm. Haven't. Oh, I love that beer. I love it. It is um, hard to describe. Super lacto, like a lactic acid nose. Um, incredible acidity to the front of the taste, but then like a nice tart cherry um, that is on the tongue. But it kind of like it, it leaves it sour, but doesn't coat the mouth. It's it's a very soft drink for me, um, and it has a kind of like wine flavor to it too which is always pleasant hmm hmm yeah i um i like it i it's taste the wine a little cherry definitely some sour i don't think it's as subtle as you're making the sour seem it's not as soft as i meant soft mouth feel not soft like it's 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 aroma is interesting like I, I feel like acid. i almost get more of the oak in the smell but it's good it's a good beer. Would you understand why this could be what I consider to be the best beer? Yeah, you know what? And maybe this is like a tie-in to like some of the other things we're gonna do uh, or talk about. Is that like I don't only because like you don't drink this stuff ever. But I'm also not around you very often when I mean, you're I drinking stuff. I don't drink this stuff. I drink mostly IPAs. Right. And, so like, but like, but like this is 
I have spent time around you beer. in beer places that serve beers in those like you know special glasses and that have like a whole like behind the bar there's just writing forever about the special things they have a special menu and there's all these other you know six pages of beers or you or like we, uh, when we were going to micro a little bit and they have that stupid screen in the back and like there was nothing under like ten dollars except for like one beer that was five dollars it was like the one thing you didn't want to drink but or headway or headway but i don't really like headway i don't really like counterweight stuff um so i would never get counterweight I don't. I don't remember you drinking a lot of this stuff. So when you said it was like your favorite beer, I just assumed the best beer or Not the my best favorite. beer. My favorite beer. We did it episode fifty or fifth, whatever that was. My favorite beer is Sea Hag, but this is what I consider to be the one that tastes the best. But it I was... could, I can't drink this again for another like year. Hmm. It tastes really good. It's really strong. But not in a way that is unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Like in a way that makes me kind of want to keep going back to it and, and getting another mouthful of that stuff. So, um, yeah, it was. It is the most expensive beer we've had on this podcast. Uh, can you only buy it in? in you can these? only buy it in the bottles. Um, each bottle, which is uh, a twelve ounces, is seven dollars. So, OEC is not known for being a cheap brewery. But I'm gonna say it's good. It's I don't feel. Um, but like they brew their like brew their own honey. They have their own like. They make their own honey. They have like their own flowers and what, like the, the the their own like vineyard and whatnot for their wife. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's definitely a a style of brewery you would not be surprised that I like. The film of the week, uh, you know, the reason we ended film up of, doing, the, of the of the year. Mario. It's only the third highest grossing film so far of the year, but the highest grossing American film. Of the year, I believe is accurate, right? Yes, that's true. Unless High Mom is nope. High Mom is a Chinese film. <laughs> highest grossing American film in the first. Is this the first film to break twenty million dollars in over a year? On opening weekend or just yeah, total? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I know Tom and Jerry hit like sixteen million. Mm-hmm. Also, just weirdly enough, before we get into this, like. That, that's shocking how much it made for, like, also being on HBO Max at the same time. Well, both of these movies. And Tom and Jerry has a lot of legs. Tom and Jerry is uh, has been, like, number three in the country for a couple weeks. Yeah, and that somebody, movie fucking sucks. I don't think streaming has any has a huge effect. I mean, it does have some effect, but not as huge of an effect as I would expect. It has... We can talk about we that. We can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the film of the week is, of course, Adam Wingard's follow-up to The Guest... Godzilla vs. Kong, The Guest Part 2. <laughs> With Alexander Skarsgård doing his best Dan Stevens impersonation. We need Kong. The world needs him. To stop what's coming. And this child. She's the only one he'll communicate with. promise to protect her and I think that in some way Kong did the same
I'm not surprised I'm doing this rundown. Godzilla, like the rest of America, hates Rick DeSantis and attacks Pensacola, Florida. <laughs> um, surprisingly, after absolutely devastating a facility, he only kills eight people. Then we jump to a CNN news story about it, because of course we do. Uh, he's looking for something, that Godzilla. We don't know what it is, but he's got something that he doesn't like. Because he's the king of the monsters. We learned that last movie. And he's got something that he has to get. And Brian Tyree Henry's here. And he's playing the cliche podcast crazy guy. Is that a cliche now? The yeah. podcaster? Oh, for sure. Like, oh, or just the crazy, the crazy conspiracy theory. They don't guy. do newsletters he's, anymore or like yeah. short band radio well, he's things. Like, he's like Randy Quaid from Independence Day or, you know. Alex Jones from reality. Uh, Woody Harrelson in 2012. They all, that, that's a, he's a podcaster, I believe, in that. Mm. It's, it's in all these goddamn movies. Um, you know, the bad guy, Walter Simmons, that's his name, even though he's clearly Mexican. Uh, why is his, I just didn't get that. Wait, is just, did Charles Dance die in the last no, Godzilla movie? No, he's, he's there. He's just not in this movie. Yeah. I just was smart. Um. It turns out that, that you know, the, 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 the facility that Godzilla attacked was Apex, because Apex is building a mecha Godzilla to destroy Godzilla. So because Using Walter, the skull of King, King Ghidorah. Ghidorah. Because Walter Simmons, played by Oscar nominee Demian Pachar, has decided... <laughs> that's right, guys. Has decided that he wants, you know, humans to be the top of the world again. The Apex Predator. Apex, get it? Anyhow, but humans aren't the apex predator. Well, no, here we are. Um, if a human met a tiger in the jungle, a human loses every time. Really, if the human has a bazooka gun, yeah, bazooka but gun. As we just assuming that like humans are walking around with bazooka guns. Well, apex predator, it could include the use of tools. I suppose so. It does, but like it's just. I think the way that it's framed is we, just like we shouldn't get off topic on that stuff. I don't know. It's I mean it's, it's just one of those other things that's. But anyways. All this has happened, like, Godzilla, he seems like he's now a bad guy. I thought he was a good guy. Millie Bobby Brown's like, he's a good guy, isn't he? He's got to be a good guy, but he's not a good guy, I guess. But she's like, oh, i got to find out why he's not being a good guy, because I know Godzilla, he's a good guy. But everyone else is like, Godzilla, we got to stop him. And so King Kong is on Skull Island, and they've been looking at him for a while. And they're like, hey, King Kong, we're going to get you to kind of take out Godzilla. And so they put him on a ship, and he goes on the ship. Um, and Because they're also looking... You know, for an energy source that, for some reason, that we'll find out. But then as they're on the ship, Godzilla's like, this King Kong looks like he's not going to be good for me. I need to fight him. I don't know why I'm doing it like a pitch meeting description. Uh, anyhow, Godzilla and him fight on a ship, and there's a lot of jostling and boat overturning. But then Godzilla leaves, and King Kong's there, and then eventually they go to Antarctica, and they go into the center of the Earth, because the Hollow Earth thing we kind of mentioned in the previous movie suddenly becomes a major plot point. That has a lot of construction around it. Yeah, and Brendan Fraser's not in this movie, which is really disappointing. Because <laughs> when you go to the journey of the center of the Earth, you, you gotta have some Brendan Fraser. If Brendan Fraser had been this instead of Alexander Skarsgård, it would have it been better. That would have been way better. They go to the Hollow Earth, and there's some more Godzilla, King Kong... Godzilla, King Kong fighting, he fights some dragon things, he drinks their blood. Isaac Gonzalez is like, that's gross, I'm a better villain than my dad is in this movie, this is weird, but I'm going to get killed off pretty quickly. And then, you know, Godzilla's like, I'm going to burn a hole through Earth from Hong Kong, because I want to fight you, even though I clearly know this mech, well, does he know? Maybe he just thinks that King Kong is the mecha Godzilla thing he's sensing, but anyways, they fight, King Kong gets beat up, um, blah 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 blah, 
guy that King Kong's knocked out, but then Mecha Godzilla takes over. Who he looks bad? I, I like the design. Oh, of the it's Mecha terrible. It looks, it looks like a nice little 60s dumb throwback. Uh, because King Ghidorah takes over the skull, takes over Mecha Godzilla, then they fight. Godzilla's not looking like he's doing too well. Then King Kong comes back to life and he uses the Thor you know, axe from what's that Stormbreaker or whatever mm-hmm. thing and he decapitates Mecha Godzilla and then King Kong and Godzilla are like, You're pretty cool, you're cool, and then they leave and that's the movie. Thoughts? Um, it's pretty stupid. Actually, it's very stupid in every way. In every conceivable way, it's this probably easily the stupidest movie I'm going to see this year. And that's coming from the guy that saw Tom and Jerry. Because at least Tom and Jerry, um, for, for whatever reason, tried to like... And I was really against this view until I saw the movie. Trying any kind of like emotion at all. At all. Any kind of human emotion period into its movie as a kind of uh, driving force behind it. This movie is uh, full of moments that end after one beat where someone's like, oh, how are we going to fix this problem? Beat, I know exactly how we're going to fix this problem. And everything is ready to go, even though they just made it seem like Damien Bichard didn't have that idea to get King Kong. That wasn't on his radar. From what we know, he didn't have it on his radar to go get King Kong. But when King Kong, but when Alexander Skarsgård just came up with the idea, and then Rebecca Hall, after like only a little bit of convincing, was just like, yeah, all right, fine. We'll take King Kong on a fucking boat to Antarctica. And then when that doesn't work, we'll fly him. And why we didn't just fly him in the first place is totally... Because well, you got to have King Kong on a boat. I Not guess. King Kong unless he's on a unless boat. On a boat. Um... You know, that's just kind of he keeps happening over and over and over again, where it's just like everything is kind of staged here in the exact way that it needs to happen to get the monster fight, which is this movie's got a bunch of monster fights, and I really like them. And I really like, interestingly, Adam Wingard, um, I hope, should not make any more of these movies, except he's just going to do straight monster fighting, because I think the best part about this movie is the way that all the monsters have a different fighting style. And I think it's great. I think it's great how King Kong does a lot of wrestling moves. King Kong is fucking Roman Reigns. He <laughs> fights like Roman. He does a Superman punch at one point. And he does. He does. Uh, he's there's a lot of kneeing people in the head. There's like tons of knees. He's always he, kneeing somebody in the head. He taunts at one part. Yeah, he's he's and, like building up his special. I mean, I, I think this movie. So I think part of my problem with this movie is the reaction to this movie, which is that Richard Brody wrote a legitimate review of like the problem that this movie has in how it sits in regards to uh, the the history of Godzilla and what it means and why it was created or whatever. But there's a scene in the movie where Godzilla and uh, King Kong scream at each other. And that's the real movie. That's what this movie is about. This movie is about... I like that part. I like that I, I scream at each other. But that's the thing, because it's it's... The moment that you... Re- it's those moments that you realize, like, what this movie is. And all this other stuff is just fucking nonsense. I mean, Millie Bobby Brown's whole thing has no purpose in this movie. They just wanted Millie Bobby Brown in the, to be in the movie. And I don't know why Brian Henry, Henry keeps saying yes to these things. Some connection to, like, King of the Monsters. Well, and, and her... If they could get her... All the better, because she's, like, you know, the most famous person that was in that 
that movie. They also got Kyle Chandler to come back. It's just, I think he's just like that in real life. Is just walking around like with his arms out and huffing and screaming for his daughter. I don't even know if he has a daughter, but I bet he just walks into rooms and is like, daughter, 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 and yeah, I'm right here, Dad. Oh, okay, good. I died on a boat in a movie once. Manchester by the Sea, right? You died on a boat in Manchester by the Sea, or did you die playing hockey? No. No, he doesn't die playing hockey, but there's a moment where Casey Affleck goes to play hockey, right? right? And they're like, oh, it's his brother. Um, but me and, my, me and my guy, just we ate up the monster fights. And I love how people say it's gory. And Is it? I guess there's some monster blood. I mean, I think it's pretty pretty cool and intense when Mechagodzilla shoots that titan in the brain and saws it in half with his laser. That's pretty cool. No, that's that, that to me is the best fight is that but it's fight like a, against 10 or whatever yeah it's but like it's just like you know pressure. when he holds his arm but it's see it's, it's, it's totally cgi and why is there a throne in hollow earth like who's building doors in hollow earth why is there a flag smashers reference in fucking hollow earth like it's from falcon winter red hand mm-hmm. is like one of the symbols of like the villain group in falcon winter soldier and like they just settle on this red hand here it's like but why like just take that out oh, yeah, the thing I found... I mean, I'm not going to get in, like, the suspension of disbelief. The thing I always thought was weird. I was looking at the throne, but I thought, like, the perfectly placed cobblestone on the ground. I was like, do these, do these Kongs put down cobblestone carefully? <laughs> like, do they go, like, cobblestone? Well, did you notice when you put the axe down, there's, like, a bunch of other axes next to it? I didn't see that, no. So, like, I'm just like, what is... I don't understand what's happening here, and I'm, we're definitely not supposed to. Um, I love when that the daughter of Damien Bashir is like, this is property of Apex. And I was like, what is this whole thing? This, the hollow earth is the property of Apex I Industries? Mean, I guess they could lay claim to <laughs> Come it. Come on. Um, yeah, no, I, I found it to be pretty, pretty pointless, pretty average. Um, I'm not as excited by the fight scenes as everyone seems to be. I think they're well shot. I'm glad we like have some daytime scenes and you can see it all. But a lot of these fights feel pretty weightless, especially that final Hong Kong fight. They're bumping into skyscrapers, and the skyscrapers are just having some shattered glass, but they're standing up a lot. They look like Lego buildings falling over. Sometimes, but sometimes they don't move. Sometimes mm. it, they, like a building that should crash to the ground just kind of stays there. Uh, and it goes on for too long. The final fight is 30 goddamn minutes. Oh, and there's an extra, after like everything's resolved... There's like an extra fight between Godzilla and King Kong. It's like, why did you do that? Just even me and even me and my guy were just like, yeah, bring out the robot. Like, it's enough with this. It's yeah. robot time. Um, I, I found the be. I actually found the most interesting part to be like when he's roaming through Hollow Earth, just because it had a cool like set design. To mm-hmm. it. Not set. I mean, I guess that'd be product. A cool production design to it. But regardless, I think all of that is also pointless. I just kind of felt everything about this film was both pointless and or convenient oh um, god convenience is this movie's like f- fucking subtitle man yeah, like like the the flask subplot a little bit of alcohol can ruin <laughs> mecha godzilla i mean i was okay with the entire fact that like it's slightly this this short wires him for a second right um but yeah this movie's just convenient it's just building into the monster fights and if you're in it for you know, watching a, a video game cutscene, um, 
then yeah, you'll mm. like it. But for somebody like me who's like wants to build up to these moments of action and have them be over in ten minutes, it became exhausting. And I I think while the final last fight scenes look great, um, that entire like really quick fight scene to Mecha Godzilla and like number ten mm-hmm. or whatever was great. Um, I thought the fight scene on the ocean on the the Tasman Sea was awful because it is nauseating in a way and has no sense of place. You said off air that you didn't know what <clears throat> ship people were on and that right. feels yeah, yeah. true. Um, there's a scene where it does like a 360 above shot um, and it just looks horrendous mm. to me. Uh, and yeah, I, I hated that fight scene and, and there's parts of that final fight scene that while on purpose hokey, like I know Adam Wingard firmly had like tongue in cheek with this entire film. And that was oh the my god! Yeah. Um, when you know Skarsgård, Hall, and company um, are flying the ship out, and they do Back to the Future, the ride or whatever that scene where God's King Kong kind of like roars at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just like, oh, no, thank you. Just no, thank you. But I just thought, this movie is so funny because like. It, it it's taking itself way too seriously while not taking itself seriously at all. Like, I love the scene when, like, they're trying to escape the Hollow Earth and uh, Damien Bouchard's daughter, I don't even know what her character's name is. Monica? Is it begin with an M? Maya? Maya. Uh, Maya? Is it actually Maya? It's Maya. Wow. Yeah. When she's, like, flying out and, like, Kong just kind of, like, picks her up because apparently he, he's mad at her for using her Roomba to kind of steal the energy... <laughs> No, I think I think he's mad at her for shooting at him. Whatever. But I mean, also, I right. love how both of them get like the, and this is like a red letter media thing that I, the the oh shit heart like a Firestein death mm-hmm. of you oh, know yeah. oh shit and no 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 and it's just like oh my god. But I love how that she dies because he just like holds it in her hand and just like, and then just like throws her on the ground like she's which is, <laughs> like she's which crap. I think is unfortunate to me because I I found her to be more. A little more of like an interesting villain, still flat. But I but Damien Machar, just his defining characteristic is that he drinks about a third of a bottle of whiskey in the film. Like I wrote notes, to this I said, how much goddamn whiskey has Machar drank in this finale? Like that glass is refilled three times. He's drank about a third of a bottle of whiskey in like the five hours of the film's finale, and that's his defining characteristic: is the fact that he is able to what should knock an average elephant on its ass. And still be completely coherent. Right, but that's like, I mean, we're having like, it's funny. So basically, the moral of the story is that this. But is, you didn't see King of the Monsters, right? Or did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles' dance is at least like doing Well, I something. want to go there in a second. I, I, want, I think one, the, the moral of this story is that like both of us kind of find the same things. We have different responses to literally the exact same thing. There is no way that when, when Maya says the line at the. At, you know, at a pivotal moment in the in the thing, when she's like, "My father gets what he wants," that everybody on set didn't go. <laughs> you know what? On, no. Man. Do you know what I liked about her performance? She reminds me of Stephanie McMahon, and this film just feels like a pro wrestling storyline. Yeah, but you this, understand that that's not good, right? I do. She's fucking terrible, but I also think she's funny. But that's that's the great thing about this movie is that the great thing about this movie is that it understands. That its terribleness is not a detriment to enjoying it if you're in the right headspace. So I do, and I also respect that. Uh, 
Whereas King of the Monsters, which I think is a better film, has hmm. no Michael Doherty. Way better. Has no Michael Doherty like touch to it. Like Wingard like forces his shit in here at like two parts. Like they have to Godzilla and Kong have to be illuminated by neon at some point, and he has to throw his synthwave score in, right. part in there. Um, my last thing I'm going to say positive again. Uh, the thing I love about this film, and it's the second time it's happened this year. The Junkie XL is doing it for me. Our Tom, yeah, Tom, okay Tom Holkenborg. I, I think he just he he's not doing anything. Like I'm not gonna be. I'm. It's not gonna be memorable to me. But the guy knows how to create a score that's hitting what the movie in, is intending to hit. Yeah. He, it's it's a good like uh it's a it's it, I don't want to say journeyman because it has like more talent to that. But he's just, he knows how to reach an emotional cadence of the film yeah. with the sound. What I would argue is that it's, not, so, like, not even Journeyman, it's not interesting, but it's doing its job. You know what he, you know what he is? You know, he's, you know what's good, yeah, you know what's good about, it's like lazy James Horner. And I don't mean to say, like, that in a bad way. Well, so, James Horner, like, when he's at his peaks, it's good, but, like, James Horner, when he's lazy, is just doing its job it's really funny. well. It's funny, I don't even get, for me, so maybe this is more of a compliment, is that I, I think the... The key that he wrote this one of the themes when they're flying into Hollow Earth is in the exact same key as um, that fucking tune from Interstellar. Uh, the time, uh, the time, the time is whatever it is. Times from Inception. Oh, Inception! Right, right. Okay, it's the exact same key, the exact same key. And I was like, is, is that is that G? The G? I don't fucking know. But it's like it's the same music. You know, you could overlay them on top of each other. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's just doing what works. He's not trying to make... Um, but, yeah, so he's... It's a thing. I, it's not a very interesting score, but it gets the it gets the job done. Godzilla King of the Monsters is better because it has... And I think that movie was, like, kind of panned. It has, like, emotional stakes for the Titans. Like, there's no Rodan scene in this. When Rodan comes out well, the that first time in that... gorgeous. It's fucking amazing. And, like, you're worried about those people... And maybe some of those people died. I mean, people have been writing about this movie a lot about the idea that, like, so many people died. This movie doesn't value human life. Whatever. No Godzilla movie values fucking human life, I think. Right? I, mean, I can't be wrong about that. When he wrecks Japan and all these old movies, he's not not wrecking people. Roland too. Emmerich's uh, Godzilla does. He does not squash Hank Azari. He purposely puts his toes down so that, you know, Hank Azari is okay. That's nice. That's nice. Um... Roger and Ebert, I mean, Roger and Ebert, Ebert and Siskel's characters don't die in that movie either. Are they in that movie? Like, the mayor and his assistant are based on oh. Ebert and Siskel. But, like, there's also no, like... Siskel and Ebert. I don't know what Ken, I'm saying, Ebert and Siskel. Ken Watanabe scene, like, you know, reviving, you know, standing next to Godzilla with, like, a fucking nuclear bomb. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's, like, there's something happening inside yeah. that movie. There's a certain thing That's to not here. it, too. Um, even though both of those movies, both these movies are CGI fests, you know, like most of the stuff you're seeing is just CGI. Yeah. Like there is a real tactile, tacticalness, tactility. Uh, mm-hmm. It has a real tactile feel to King of the Monsters. Yeah. Like when, um, Sir Gawaya, is, the, is that Ken Watanabe's character, uh, goes into Godzilla's lair, mm-hmm. like it actually kind of feels like a kind of slightly real place. When we're in Godzilla King Kong's lair here, it feels like we're 
in a CGI ride still. Well, because they kind of set it up too. Besides like they, the that, ground, like, which is probably is, the only practical stuff. Right, that this is like, the Godzilla place is like an old ancient place or something. Somebody at some point worshipped him here or something. Like there is, there's this kind of undercurrent, undergirding of, of, nice. Like that of word. story or like a, a kind of a, a narrative that this movie just kind of doesn't want to do. But this movie doesn't want to do that. That's the thing that I think people have to go into this movie knowing is that like there's going to be a lot of stuff missing. And Adam Wingard left it out on purpose to be a fucking jerk. But like a hilariously fun jerk. If you go in, But if you go into this as like a huge Godzilla fan... You're going to have a good time because it's going to give sure. you like, like if you're a huge Godzilla fan, the thing you care most about is either is is the fights and an undercurrent of you know the touch that humanity has on the world. Mm-hmm. King of the Monsters did the touch of humanity on the world, didn't it? Do the fights that well because you know like it still has that kind of like covered in darkness sort of thing. But it's um, still better. I mean, the last fight, King Ghidorah, Mothra. Rodan Godzilla thing I think is still a much more effective fight scene. I think in it's a more. Ways. I think it's much more climactic. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not as visually stimulating. No, no, no. It's just kind of it's it's it's. But I think I think flat, a yeah. person who's going who's a huge Godzilla fan wants visual stimulation, like wants to see just shit getting destroyed. And if you like that, you're gonna like you're gonna like this. And I'll say, my, I guess my final word on it is that like I could watch this with my kid, and. So I'm a little bit kind of watching it through his eyes, and he thought it was really cool, and he thought it was really fun, and he doesn't want any kind of narrative undergirding. He doesn't want anything. He just wants monster fights. I will not be able to watch Mortal Kombat with him, and I'm 100% sure I'm not going to watch Mortal Kombat. If I wasn't watching Godzilla vs. Kong with him, I probably would have turned it off after oh, so 20 minutes. Gonna be a, so it's gonna be a, that's going to be a solo review? Well, I mean... Probably, because I'm looking at the trailers and I'm saying, like, yeah, this is just, like, a slightly better-looking version of the movie they already made. And there's no way to make a good Mortal Kombat movie. There's nothing you can do. They put Get Over Here in there. I'm out. I'm out. You gotta find a way to do Mortal Kombat without being like, there is a test of champions. I am Scorpion. I am Sub-Zero. I'm interested to see... Who fucking cares? I'm interested to see how they do the gore without, like, hellboying the gore. Oh, they're gonna hellboy the gore. No, they've they've said particularly like it's gory, but it's it's pushing the limits, but it's not over the top. But I, I feel would, like they're saying like we're not hellboying it. But here's what I would say: is that pushing the limits for me is pushing the limits emotionally, which would mean pushing the limits in like of good taste. Again, no, I want not a person getting cut in half. I don't give a shit about a person getting <laughs> cut in half. You know what I mean? Like that's why I'll go back to I think if we when we round up this. You know this list in the next couple of weeks, and I don't know what kind of conversations we have. The movie that like this is our last film review before right. our, our we're done with the list. The movie that I you kind of showed me that I was like, wow, that is a good movie that I hadn't seen before. Is I saw The Devil, and it's because a lot of people die and a lot of people die horrible deaths, but the the way that they kind of navigate the emotions of that mixed with like. The uh, the visceral, like horror, is awesome. It's be, perfect. It's perfect. Well, that's you know what I mean? And Mortal be, Kombat obviously isn't going to do that. That'd be an interesting thing to discuss. Like before we started number ones, I guess you kind of like said it already. Is like the one movie you saw that from the other person's list that like was like, oh, that's awesome. But, well, we um, could talk more about it. Yeah. But um, because I think about it a lot and I've watched it again. 
Um, there's no... off the top of my head, clean shaven would be mine. Yeah, not not accidental tourist. Or had you seen accidental tourist? I had not. I feel like it shaped like your entire existence. I have not um, seen it since either. Mortal Kombat. I haven't seen clean shaven either. Mortal Kombat is never can never do that, and it also is not going to be fun, stupid like this movie, and it's not going to be kind of uh, fun. Really trying hard to not be stupid and almost getting there of like Godzilla King of Monsters or any of these other kind of any of these other movies. There's not going to be. It's going to be an unfortunate Godzilla Gareth Edwards 2014. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's just not fun to watch. And it's just it's just like a slog, and they, and they you know they just want to show you like look at this this character. Like, have you seen all four of these MonsterVerse movies? Yeah. What's what's your What's your favorite? I kind of like Kong Skull Island. Kong Skull Island, like by far my. Favorite. Um, and then I think probably King of Monsters, and Same. then this one, and then Godzilla. Same, yeah, that's that's how I would go. Yeah, but um, I mean, this one again, and but Gareth Edwards Godzilla is, uh, boring, and not interesting, and not fun. It's like a good first like forty minutes. But it's just, I think a lot of these movies you will give them 40 minutes because you're just like, you're not going to show me Godzilla right away. Yeah. And that's why this movie's kind of fun because they're just like, oh yeah, we're going to show, we're going to show King Kong right away and he's going to throw a fucking tree through his Truman Show dome and then we'll get, that's how we're going to start everything. And then like, Kong just walking around is not going to be interesting in this movie. Yeah. It's just Kong all the time. I hope you'd like him. <laughs> because he's a main character. Anything else? Nope, that's it for film reviews of the Pivotal Film List uh, until the Pivotal Film List is done. Then we'll get back to other film reviews um, after we've done our list. But because to 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 divulge, uh, there's really not new movies coming out that seem interesting in the next couple of weeks. And we've decided to dedicate our full episodes just to our number ones. Mm. So the next mm. two episodes will be probably a little shorter, um, especially since we've already did a full episode on my number one uh and you know uh that that will be that maybe not we might be able to get like a whole normal episode out of out of out of our number ones no i don't i don't think it'll be two hours plus you never know you never know yeah that's true we don't know about us speaking of it happens who knows how long we'll get out of something we'll be right back with my number two As I take my final sip of Antioch, which I consider the best beer um, I've had, I I think about my number two, which for uh, until, what, four months ago was my number one? Mm. Um, When a movie, which most people have figured out what it is, Mm -hmm. had just dug its nails into me deeper and deeper and deeper. And finally... I got a text message about that today. From who? From friend of the show, JP. Oh. And he's like, clearly this is Mario's number one. And you're like... <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he did, the way he said it made it sound like I didn't forget to take it out once. He was just kind of like, put it together. And he was like, made the assumption, so... Yeah, I think, you, I think you've done a good job taking them out. I don't think... I've or heard. reversing them. But I think it's, it's pretty obvious my number one is. Um, but for the longest time, this film was my number one. It was my number one because it is what I consider to be, if somebody were to ask me, what is the best film of all time? And the way it's crafted, and the way it's executed, and the way all of its pieces come together, and the way that it displays an intense charisma that 
captures your eye and keeps it glued to the screen no matter the scene. Mm-hmm. And the way that scenes seem to seamlessly flow one to another. I speak a lot in some of my reviews about uh, cadence of film and how I really mm. appreciate cadence. If Beale Street could talk, one of my best... We did, we, we did that in the podcast, right? We did best sound... Was it on the podcast or was that before the podcast? No, when it, it was won, on the podcast, yeah. When it won my best sound mixing because of how the cadence flew, uh, flowed. This film has a cadence that is never interrupted for me. It is the gold record film I'd put on the Voyager uh, just for, you know, some alien to see. To be like, this is the best of film that we have. It is a director much like the Coens, who has shown up um, the most often on my list. Uh, you know, I've had him, um, I'm looking at it if right memory now, could yeah. serve, three other times. Is it three? What I is, believe it is three. What's the, how we'll talk, we could talk about it afterwards, but I was just looking through it, and I was trying to remember what the fourth one would be. Strangers? Strangers. Psycho. Psycho. Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca, Rebecca. Yeah. Right. Ah. Which is the highest ranked of the three. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, that director, of course, being Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I, I consider, despite his numerous personal problems, to be the the greatest director of all time. Uh, and, and that is, of course, a subjective thing. I, I wouldn't argue with anybody who says that Kurosawa or any of the ilk are the best directors, because this is 100% a subjective thing. If you say Tarantino, I'm going to push you in a snowbank, though. Who's going to say that? Some psychopath, somebody on Reddit would say that. Um, All time, he would, yeah. even he would disagree with that. Of course, uh, and that's because Alfred Hitchcock, at most, at his best, wanted to control an audience and entertain an audience. I think he, with the making of this film, um, he even said to the writer Ernest, I think it was Ernest Lehman. I think he was speaking to him, said, like, you know, re-control what the audience is feeling at all points, and eventually we'll get to a point where we could just, we don't even have to make a movie. We could just put electrodes in somebody's brain and get them to scream or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is it. This is a master, a puppet master, I should say, controlling the strings of his audience. And it works in every way. Um, I'm usually one to speak of iconic scenes and not finding them too iconic upon future viewings. Looking at you, uh, Godfather, and the uh, mm. orange orchard scene. Mm-hmm. It's orange orchard, right? Scene. I don't, I don't give a shit about. I don't give a shit about any of the Godfather. I I feel bad about it, but I don't. Either. I don't either. But like, like even not like even James Sunny getting shot, I'm just like that looks good, but whatever. Uh, but the crop duster scene from this film is a masterclass in tension building, and just remains iconic. As I've given it away. My number two is the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock film, North by Northwest. I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. Cary Grant becomes a secret agent against his will. Propelled at gunpoint onto the highest level of international intrigue and framed for murder. Cary Grant, running for his life, searching for a man who doesn't exist, and a secret nobody knows, and finding a blonde who has all the answers. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? 
Shall I climb up and tell you why? At breakneck speed, they race together toward the excitement that lies dead ahead, north by northwest. How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason as the man of sinister surprises. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. The perfect setup for suspense. With the perfect woman and the perfect crime, as Alfred Hitchcock takes you north by northwest. Charismatic ad exec Roger Thornhill has bought himself a newspaper and is going to go to a bar to have an important meeting. He's got to get that meeting done, meeting some colleagues, you know, because he's got some tickets to the theater. Maybe he's going to go see West Side Story. That's what it was playing that day. Oh. Um, and, but somebody, some two guys, I think he's George Kaplan, two dopes. You know, Lebowski. Uh, and they grab him, and they they bring him to this mansion uh, where, where somebody, you know, pretends to be Townsend, but it's actually Philip Van Damme, Van Damme, who's, you know, a spy, not a spy, but he's, he's, he's a seller of secrets, as it were. Uh, and they think that George Kaplan is a spy, and they think that that spy is Roger Thornhill. Despite his protests, they don't believe Thornhill, and they uh, decide to douse him full of some good old quality Kentucky bourbon and put him on the car. And I believe he's, he's not... What is he singing, though? He's, not, he's singing My Fair Lady yeah. in the car. Um, because Thornhill has, uh, has relearned a, a nice pickled liver, um, he loves his Gibsons later on, he, he, he's able to despite drinking a bottle, able to come to and invade, and a great comedic driving, drunk driving scene yeah. ensues, um, where he is eventually arrested for drunk driving, uh, and, you know, taken in the court. His, he says, like, I've, I've been kidnapped, you know, I was drunk against my will, they tried to kill me. The judge is like, this is ridiculous. His mother's an awful human being who doesn't at oh all God. believe that his son was potentially going to be murdered. She sucks. Just pay the $2, Roger. Which is a joke tied to something, some like old comedic routine, apparently. Um, he goes back to the house where somebody pretends to be Mrs. Townsend. It turns out to be Van Damme's sister, where you learn in the end. Um... And he finds out that the uh, that, that Townsend is actually speaking at the General Assembly of the UN, and so released on bail. Not really released on bail. It seems like drunk driving isn't a big issue in 1959. Well, especially he's a he's an upper class dude. I feel like yeah. if he just went home, stopped looking around, his life would have been fine. Yeah, for sure. Um. But he goes to the UN and he sees that this Lester Townsend isn't the one who said he is. What is this? And aren't you, what's going on in your house? And Townsend's like, my house has been sealed up. Who are you? What are you talking about? Because he's got a knife in the back. Somebody threw a knife and, oh no, Thornhill, in a stroke of genius, pulls the knife out. 
And everyone's like, you just killed this dude. And he's like, no, I didn't. And he runs. And he gets on a train and he meets a stranger there. Mm. Uh, Eva Marie Saint, who was my age when she made this movie and is still alive. I'm not going to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, she was in an episode of Frasier. And I still can't believe that it's her. And I'm just... she, and she aged very gracefully, too. Like, yeah, I saw yeah, yeah. clips of her from like 1990 Academies where she was like in her 70s. And she looks like... I just couldn't 50s. believe that she, Ava Marie Saint, was in fucking Frasier. <laughs> well, it's like the uh, it's like Joan Fontaine and uh, Olivia De Havilland. Like they just live forever. Right, right, right. And they have to do something. So yeah. they do those. And he meets Eve, Eva Marie Saint, on the train, and they uh, they make sweet love. But it turns out Eve is working for Philip, also Philip's little little guy there, great Martin Landau playing Leonard. Mm. Um, he played him gay, which is great, hmm. I think. Yeah. Uh, Martin Landau made that choice. Martin Landau's also fucking phenomenal in this. Mm-hmm. Um, nice, great story where Alfred Hitchcock, like, Martin Landau was concerned because Alfred Hitchcock wasn't giving him notes. And he was, like, talking to everyone else. And Hitchcock's like, if I don't tell you anything, it's because you're doing what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't imagine um, Martin Landau not doing what Alfred Hitchcock exactly wanted him to do. Yeah, I'm sure when he decided to play him gay, Alfred Hitchcock was like, that's genius. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had thought of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, he, he gets off the train. Um, then he goes to, he gets told by Eve to meet George Kaplan at a, at a field, an abandoned field at 3.30. There's nobody there. But a, but a farm guy comes out, and he's wearing a suit, and you know, Thornhill and him have a conversation about how you can make good money crop dusting, but isn't that odd that that crop duster's cropping where there is no, you know, there is no uh, crops? Mm-hmm. It leads to that great little chase scene that eventually the um, the plane explodes. Apparently that plane is being flown by the henchmen we no longer see from the beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah. I never knew that until recently. Hmm. That's why you never see him again. Yeah. Um, it's just, just the one it's that guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he goes to Eve and he's like, bro, you're a little trickster. I, you got your thing. And, uh, she's, you know, tries to play coy, but he eventually realizes that she's scurried off to an antique show. And, uh, he goes there and he makes a scene and, you know, good old James Mason's like, I'm disappointed in you. We should have went to the actor's studio. You're showing your hand too much, which is also one of the greatest things ever, is the fact that, like, these are such threatening villains, but in the end, they're, like, fucking idiots. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's such mistaken identity, but they're so stupid in the end, <laughs> which is, I think, a genius. Because, like, for all this movie's intensity, like, it has such great, like, comedy to mm-hmm. it as well. Um and eventually he gets arrested, and it turns out he finds out that uh, Eve is working for the government. Um, the government's been watching this all along. They're, they're happy to let Roger Thornhill die because George Kaplan doesn't exist. He's just a guy that the government created to take you know, the, pr- the pressure off of Eve, who's the real spy in the mix. Um, and, uh, you know, now she's going to be exposed. And so he, Roger Thornhill, has to willingly take on the job to go to Grand, not Grand Rapids, uh, to go to South Dakota. What is it? What is it? Which South Dakota is it? I don't remember. They fly to. Um, yeah, where is it? Um, where is I keep wanting to say Grand Rapids. It's not Grand Rapids, No, it's, though. um, 
don't know. They fly us, you know, they go to Mount Mount Rushmore, um, where they concoct a scheme where Eve will shoot Roger with blanks to take the suspicion off of her, and Roger thinks he's he's good and set, but all know Leonard, the smart villain who's in love, apparently, the way that Martin Landau played it with with Van Damme. I don't like to keep giving her a French name. Van Damme uh, finds out the blanks, and so he has to lead to the climactic battle. They go up Mount Rushmore. They have a good old fight scene. That other henchman falls to his death. And then uh, right before Leonard's able to kill um, Roger and Eve, he is shot dead by that sergeant with a really great pistol shot. Mm. Jesus Christ. That's a good distance. Um, And then as Eve's hanging off, he's able to pull her up and pull her right in the bed because we cut away to them on a train again. And... That train, you know, goes right into a tunnel, and it turns out Alfred Hitchcock created that, that like joke. I didn't even know that. I thought that was like a, a standing joke. The uh, innuendo of sex of a train going into a tunnel uh. that you see like in Naked Gun and all that. Like, there's so many like so many things in this movie. I'm like, oh, this like led to my love of like little trinkets that like pop up on the list of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he Hitchcock was like, I want to get something past the censors, and it was that. Another interesting thing is trust my women's intuition mm-hmm. that Leonard says like almost got like cut from the film because the censors were like kind of a man saying that. <sighs> um, no, so to me, okay. as you see, kind of in the the, the moments where I kind of keep cutting away to talk about how much I love this film, it's it's the perfect film for me. Um, Cary Grant. I saw this movie when I was young. I saw this movie when I was like 11 or 12. Uh-huh. And Cary Grant was what I thought a man should be. Um, not just not super... T- tired all the time. and <laughs> Tired and exhausted <laughs> and just going off of the charisma and error he, he shows. Um, you know, he, he's, he's not an action hero at all. He's able to punch an auctioneer a couple times in the face. And that's, that's about it. <laughs> that's all he's able to He's able to kill the one henchman, kind of. Right. But you know he's outmatched in every way. He's he's not. He doesn't know what he's doing. He keeps just stumbling in, just through his good graces. Mm-hmm. GQ called his suit the best suit in film history. I think the pants are a little loose. I'm not a fan of that, but that suit looks great. And I saw that well, suit. They wore and I was, loose pants back then. I know they wore loose pants, but I saw that and I was like, that's that's what I want to be. Like this is the this is the type of charisma I want to have. I kind of just want to. I kind of want to bumble through things accidentally, but I want to get by through my charisma. Mm-hmm. That's what a person does. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time I ever saw that crop duster scene, I was just, just mesmerized by like, cause I had never seen something to that point that had like had so many fake outs, mm-hmm. had so many, so much building quiet tension where that score drops out. And you just get, you know, that fucking terrific score. I, I like Bernard Herman, Beloved for his psycho score, to me this is leagues above the psycho score. Oh well, yeah, I don't think so. But um, but I just no, uh, for me, mm-hmm. I I think they're both great. It just works more mm-hmm. for me because it's more or whatever. Um, you know, it drops out and it keeps having that fake outs and just like the comedic moment of the two guys sitting across from each other and Thornhill's kind of looking around and slowly walks over to him and just tries to make like the dumbest small talk mm-hmm. in the world. All of it just works so well for me as a young kid. Um, the thing that most worked for me though, as a kid 
was like, what is it called? Kinetic typography. The first, like, when I saw this film and saw Bass's credit sequence starts mm-hmm. with that Bernard Herrmann score, and you just get the lines flowing through and, you know, the credits rolling. I think this is the first time of, like, kinetic typography ever in a film. Die Hard's got that kinetic typography that I really love, too. Mm-hmm. Another connection there to my list. Um, like, I just knew I was... I knew this was... And it, it melts into the being being against a skyscraper, and the type still keeps going. I was locked in. Mm-hmm. Like, as a kid, I was just locked in. And it just kept me all the way through. It, it knows when to be funny. It knows when to be dramatic. It knows when it knows when to let itself breathe. Um, Cary Grant, for as much of an asshole as he is, is funny as hell, and everyone's kind of, and, and the scenarios they're in are funny, um, but also have have a real stake to them. Uh, some of the choices they make when describing the situation going on, like when the professor and Roger are talking, and they're obviously talking. I, I only presume about the blinks or, or that plan or mm-hmm. something. You get a feeling they're talking about something that's going to come later. Um, just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see the love. You can, see, you can see this movie and see how much it's loved, how much of it's pulled. Especially from the Coen brothers, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, who, you know, like the Coens and, and Alfred Hitchcock are, are my favorite directors. And that kind of scene where the government officials first find out about Roger Thornhill being um, Kaplan. Mm-hmm. They're sitting there going, like, what do we do about this? And he's like, nothing. It mm-hmm. just reminds me of J.K. Simmons talking with, oh, God, I can never remember that other actor's name, about, like, what do we learn here? Damned if I know. Oh, the end of Burn After Reading? Yeah. yeah. Um, or, you know, as much as Big Lebowski's influenced by The Big Sleep, like, a lot of it's mostly The Big Sleep, like, the entire premise or the idea of, like, him getting too drunk and him getting, you know, forcibly made drunk or him doing that kind of like in tone perfect with the scribbling and Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. it's the penis and this is an actual plot thing. You've seen this in our movies, but like the the timing of it is, is sure. in step. And the, um, and the manner in which that he does it. Like mm-hmm. someone who steps away to do he something. Quickly looks, he quickly darts yeah. over, looks yeah. at it. Um. Yeah, this 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 film for me works on on every level. It's it's nice to have a. I mean, fortunately in the finale, she kind of like falls away from having the strength, but they have a, a really like in nineteen fifty nine a fairly strong leading woman was was great. Mm-hmm. I thought like like and I do not. I'm not. I wish she had a little more agency in the Mount Rushmore scene. Um, but leading up to that, she's the spy. She's the one kind of in control she's the one manipulating everything around her i like that a lot um yeah i i just i i I look at this and every bit of it works like i think something in the area of um like 12 feet of film were cut from this it ends up being like 15 or 20 seconds was Mm -hmm. cut to make the final cut of this it Mm -hmm. was like they pushed to make this under two hours and Hitchcock was like, "Is in my contract?" No, you're not. Um, and I, I couldn't look at this and see what I'd cut out. Maybe the little banter between him and his mom when they're going to find the actual 
George Kaplan, yeah. but it cements how awful of a person his mom is. Um, and it leads to that great, like, joke where she asks him, you know, she asks in the elevator if they're planning on murdering her son. Like, that that pays off well. And this film's full of that. The film's full of great setups and payoffs. Um, yeah, this this stands at number two because... I come back to it all the time, and I'm always finding something new. I didn't even see the burn after reading Connection until this past time, and I watched this movie two years ago last. Um, you know, it's not a movie I watch regularly. Antioch's not a beer I drink regularly, but every time I do, I'm always locked in. I'm never distracted. Um, I was recovering from my first shot of Pfizer, which I actually had a slight reaction to and feeling tired. And so I should have been asleep, but I was just locked into that film. Mm-hmm. I was eating some mint chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> and I was locked in. And it is the, the pinnacle of filmmaking for me. Um, yeah, it's... Um, I don't know. The first time I saw it was in uh, that film was literature class in high school. And we literally just watched it so we can watch um, the crop dusting scene... We watched the whole the beginning of the movie so we can have some context of the crop dusting scene, and then the Mount Rushmore scene, which are like you know held up as like very classic scenes. So, um, it was presented in a very academic way to me at first, and I think so. I kind of went through. I've gone through various stages with this. One is that it was presented as a very academic thing, so I didn't really get to watch it as for like it's on its own merit. You know what I mean? I was just kind of watching for things and for tricks and trying to make connections and, like, look at how this scene works and look at how this scene works and blah, 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 blah. The little, ki- the little kid in the background holding his ears when the blank is going to go off. Or even just, like, sl- like doing like a shot-by-shot of the crop-dusting scene and, like, noticing what was probably... Oh, was that something that happened in this class? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were that? just kind of, like... Like you know how this works. Like this is real and this is not real. Like all this other stuff. I mean, I I don't. I, it's a, that seems like such a, a scummy way to. to sure. Uh, oh yeah. It absolutely. Seems like such a bad way to view this movie. But I think it's it's a thing that Roger Ebert did all the time, where he's like, I've done a frame by frame like analysis over the course of a week of this movie. Like, watch it up upside down. We watch or no, you just watch it and you stop or um a shot by shot. So you stop it after every cut to talk about like. To analyze the like what's happening and you know blah blah blah, and so it was kind of framed like that. And I was like, well, that's this is fine. Like, I would. And what I said to you then is like, I understood even then the crop dusting scene worked. You know what I mean? Like, in a way that a lot of movies try to have um, these set pieces work. And if I can point to anything in terms of my life and terms of North by Northwest, it's that like I love a good set piece. And I just think so infrequently, or so frequently, people do them wrong. They focus on the wrong things, or they're too long, or the pacing's off, or, you know, there's too many other things going on inside the set piece, or whatever, in literature and in movies. I love a good, I love a good set piece. The definition, like, the, the parameters are set. Here are the players. Here are the things that are going to happen inside the set piece. You set it all up, and then you go. So... Interesting enough, like my favorite set piece in modern film, I guess I define it as a set piece. It happens in my number one. Okay. I'd call that a set piece, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. That and my favorite overall set piece is, is the crop dusting scene of all films. Mm-hmm. What is like do you know your 
No, favorite I, don't, set I piece? don't know if I have a favorite set piece. Because I'm, I'm a huge set piece guy, too, but I just kind of, like, drill them into my head. But I know I know when I like them. I actually know them more in, like, books than I do. I notice them more in books than I do in movies. Because movies maybe just seem like um, they're supposed to be there. Like, everything's kind of a set piece mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But a book is kind of, you know, you're, you're going through... It's, like, word by word almost. But then you occur... You, like, stumble upon this scene in a book... Where it's uh, all the words seem to kind of be of a of a whole, you know what I mean? And like you get like ten pages which all belong together, and it feels like you read one page, but you've really read ten pages. As long as your best set piece in a novel is not the Needful Things dream teacher jacking. No, I hate Needful Things. I think Needful Things is fucking terrible. No, my like favorite set pieces in books are like, um, uh, in Gravity's Rainbow, where um, what's her name? Fuck, I forget her name. They've, you know, that organization has kind of kidnapped this fucking enchantress and she shits in Pointsman's mouth. Mm. Um, Just like the visceral way that that happens or in like the Savage Detectives where there's a scene where um, Arturo Bellano is working at this campground and, um, you know, there's just, there's uh, these people kind of come in. It's it's told from like an oral history standpoint, but just that, that whole campground scene is... Is it's just like this big chunk in the middle, not even that big, or like even that same book. There's a scene with a sword fight on a beach in it, and you know, it's just like perfect. You know, it's my favorite novel set piece. It's interestingly from an author in a book I'm not particularly in love with, but it's when they're stuck in like the traffic in white noise. Oh sure, yeah, but the airborne toxic yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Delilah's got a couple of those um, things in the book. There's, I mean, one of mine, one of mine that I would put up there is the beginning of Mao Two. Um, is that Delilah? Yeah, it's okay. um, not right. After, maybe right after White Noise. It's ninety one or ninety two. Um, the that's uh, like that nine. That's the no. That's anthem, Underworld. Right? No, but like, isn't Mao Two also pretty thick? Mm-mm. Mao Two is just like a, re- a regular Delilah oh, book. Okay. Um, the Mooney Wedding and that, but there's also a good um, there's a good conversation scene in that too. Um, but I don't know. But I love. I, but I like a good set piece. I like when you when somebody sets things in motion and then. Um, calls action and it pays off not just like in terms of and that's what happens with action movies you know what I mean like the so the biggest failure set piece I've I can think of in, in modern cinema and there's, there's I'm sure there's like 15 movies that came out this year that have shitty fucking set pieces in it but the one for me that's like satisfies on one level and it is a complete and utter failure on the other and thus the the set piece is a failure is the bombing of the football stadium in Dark Knight Rises, mm. where like you just get this, you get like the hot, the great fucking Hans and pounding. You get Joseph Gordon Levitt and all the other cops just like running. You get you know all this shit happening all over the place. It looks totally fucking cool, but it serves like no purpose other than the fact that like oh it's a set piece. Did you see my big set piece? I blew up a football stadium. That was awesome, right? And you're like yes. And Tennant did a lot of stuff, too. I think Nolan's has that problem. That, yeah. Like the, the, uh, the wave set piece in Interstellar is a, a, a dismal failure. Uh, it's kind of, it kind of is. I kind of, I give Interstellar a little bit of pass because it's so weirdly audacious and how, like, not movie that, it is. Yeah, I guess that's You know true. what I mean? Um, but he's, yeah, but he's got that shit all over the place. Like, even in stuff, even in movies I like, there's always, like, one thing where you're just like, I don't know about that, buddy. 
You got, um, the, you got the hallway scene right in Inception, but you got the hallway. You got a bunch of, of cool stuff in Inception, but I, I like that and I like that it functions on that level. But then I watched North by Northwest again, and I was just like, oh, it's just it's just funny. Yeah, is this you? When was the second time you watched it after? Probably right after that. Okay, because okay. I was I was kind of in in like movies were kind of percolating inside my <clears> mind, and I watched it after that. I was like, oh, that was funny. That was a fun movie. Um, interestingly enough, this is not one of Roger Ebert's great movies, North by Northwest. Like, he's got a bunch of, he's got, like, almost every, like, not almost everyone. He's got a lot of Hitchcock movies on there. This is not one of them. Um, I've since kind of come to kind of find, like, a middle ground between that, where, like, I I guess I get it, but I don't get it. Get why it's not on there? Or- I get why it's good, but I also don't get why it's good. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't do, it, it doesn't do anything for me. And I feel kind of guilty about that because I get so much pleasure out of watching some of the things happen. I think Cary Grant is amazing in this. Even though, again, he looks like he's just fucking half asleep and just tanked. And, you know, um, Jackie Mason, the same thing. Like, I'm not even sure he James knows. Mason. James Mason. I, don't, I keep saying, I've been like thinking the words Jackie Mason in my head all day. And I was like, say James Mason, but I didn't. I said fucking Jackie Mason. He seems super bored. Like, greatly bored. Um, it satisfies a lot of those kind of, like... He's still uh, in that star is born mindset. <laughs> oh, I thought... See, it's funny. I think he's got, like... There's, like, a Lolita quality to him. where or Like, a Humper Humper, where he's just kind of like, I'm entering a room here. Wait, is he Humper? Yeah. Why, why did I always forget that he's that? That's on my list. Why do I always forget that he's... Oh, my God. So he's just, like... He, like, walks into that room. You know, when you first meet him... And the town's in a state. And he walks into the room, and he's just like, I'm very important. And you're just kind of like, oh, you are very important. I don't know why. Do you, well, do you, do you know why I think that is? And, and I, I just think it's because Martin Landau is, like, always there in every scene oh, he's Oh, and in. he's just like... He's just fucking... Oh, he's amazing. Destroying everything. <clears throat> but, so, and I won't divulge the nature of one of my other... So if we talk about that thing next week, there's another one that I'll talk about. So I won't talk about that. Um, But, like... I don't know. There's something... This, own, this movie seems almost too funny at times. And I want it sometimes to calm down and do a rear window thing. Or do like a vertigo thing. Or do a uh, a psycho thing for sure. Well, which is it's just kind of like, I want to feel something. Like, I don't, want to feel, I don't necessarily want to feel excited. I want to be interested. Well, that's th- what's, what's funny is... is- Alfred Hitchcock specifically specifically made this to not be that. Yeah, he and was, it's... he was tired of making that, and he just wanted to make a movie. Like I think the reason, the the core reason I got so close to this movie at the when I did was I was such like a James Bond guy younger, uh-huh. and this is the best James Bond movie. Mm. Um, it is. I mean, it's probably you're one hundred percent right about that. Yeah, and and I've, I'm I'm a person like. Looking at our like top tens, I'm one. I mean, this is no criticism of you, but I'm I'm an entertainment guy. Mm. Like I look for stuff that like. I mean, I obviously my number one's not going to be like an entertaining film, but um, I very much, which is surprising because like the Godzilla versus Kong thing didn't work for me. Um, but I'm always willing when it's masterfully and expertly done to just be entertained. And, like, I know that there's nothing going on beneath what is being presented to me here, but the fact that it's done with such precision is 
it, I respond. Well, let's turn this into another two hour and a half, two and a half hour podcast. So, if I were to, if I was to kind of, if you were to track it, I'm not asking you to track it like in detail right now, but I think I'm more, I can see, and I'm more interested in exactly what you're describing when it comes to music, because I was raised in a musical household. So, like, I could, I have a lot of stuff that I love that I understand is not kind of, it doesn't necessarily do anything for me, like, emotionally. I'm just like, it's autobiographically, like, very important. But I understand that it stinks. You know what I mean? Mm. Which is not to say that North by Northwest stinks. I'm just saying, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm getting to a point. Um, or I can understand, not that it stinks, but like, oh, so the, the record that I keep, like, coming back to when I think about records, like, in this manner is... Remember that, I think it's 2001, early 2001 or late 2000, the Blink-182 record, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Yeah. Remember that record? Is that the one with, um, what the hell song on that? The Rock Show. Oh, maybe it was Rock Show. I think so. But I remember when it came out, I was working at the it's record. It's like right after End of the State came out. Yes. That's like their next album yes. after that. Yeah, yeah. And I was, was a huge Blink Way, and it was a big point. deal. Remember, it's you like a fifteen-year-old, so I love right. that band. So you were you were probably it's part like of that this. and Chocolate Starship and the Hot Dog sure. Flavored Water. But exactly, it was a big deal. I listened to it. I was like, I don't like it because it's. I, I hated that album. So that's interesting. So we can talk about that. I get it. I don't like it, but I understand why. All the reviews are saying, like, this is a step forward. So that was kind of, like, a big deal for me. That record, and it's, it's funny, I, was, I made a pivotal record list, which is, we, I can never do that podcast because my pivotal record list off the top of my head was, like, 130 records long. And I missed some. And I was, you know, so, like, I, we can, I, I, can, I, I could never that, winnow that down. I couldn't do that for an opposite reason. The fact that I'm like, I like this song and this song, and they're off, like, right. they're 20 years apart, and I'm like, oh. I could pivotal song would be harder and maybe much more interesting for me. Um, there'd be definitely more sting songs on there or sting related songs on there that I would like care to admit. Um, but surfer I surfer sting or crow sting. Surfer sting. Okay. <laughs> Tantric sting. Um, and so uh, with music, I'm able to kind of look at it and be like. I can detach myself but not be detached from it. So I was listening to Stone Temple Pilots Purple this week, which is this record that has um, Big Empty and Interstate Love Song on it. And I'm just like, I, Tiny Music from the Vatican Gift Shop, which is their next record, is one of my favorite all-time records. On the list that I made, it's, on, it's in the top 20. Maybe in the top 15, maybe in the top 10. What, 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 what album? Tiny Music from the Vatican Gift Shop. It's the third I don't, record. I don't, I don't know. It has Big Bang Baby and I don't, um, I don't know Lady Picture Show. I don't know what style music they are or anything. Stone Temple Pilots? Good oh. for you. you. You said Stone Temple Pilots. I didn't yeah. hear Stone Temple Pilots. You said Vatican. But, okay, whatever. Well, that's the, name of the, that's the name of the record. Oh. I didn't hear you say Stone Temple Pilots. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I didn't say it. I don't know. Purple, I get. Purple is like a, is like a big, chunky. It's like an action movie. You know That's what I mean? Also, Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, it's the second one with okay. with Interstate Love Song and Big Empty and um, Vaseline. Yeah, um, it was our big hit record. It was the record that kind of made them Stone Temple Pilots, and everyone was paying attention to them. But now, looking back at it, I'm just like, well, that's just like a that's just like an action movie. 
It's got a lot of very satisfying ingredients to it, but as an overall thing, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm emotionally attached to this other thing, which maybe doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but is, but I could, my point is that like, I'm still very attached to purple. I'm still very attached to something like not a very good record. I can understand its, I can understand its goodness. And I can understand how it makes sense in, in like the universe. One of the problems I've always had with North by Northwest is that, so you could say that it influenced a lot of movies. I think Big Lebowski, whatever influence it had on Big Lebowski, I think Big Lebowski does it better. I think Big Lebowski is more fun. I think Big Lebowski has like set pieces that are equally as interesting in a lot of ways. And I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock was also more emotionally present in some of his other movies that I was, I have more of an like an attachment to. Like none of them made my list because it, you know I you know, I don't like like me and Alfred Hitchcock don't have relationships like that. Um, but I kind of I I get it, but I also don't. I get it, but I don't get it. Like, so you said you were, like, really dialed in. Like, I kept having trouble dialing it in. Like, I just wanted... Like, that's when I texted you, like, I just want him to punch his mother in the goddamn face. Is probably, like, code for me being, like, cut this section out of the movie. So you're saying, like, there's nothing to be cut. I feel like there's a whole bunch of scenes in here that are just in here so Cary Grant can riff. And I'm just like, I don't... Just move on from the riffing. Like, do more mystery. Because if it's just Cary Grant doing old man rich guy stuff, like... Be an old man, rich guy in your advertising agency. You don't have to do any of these things. Like, and it's, I, I feel like there's a really interesting juxtaposition between, um, uh, what's the movie we just did? Ghost uh, World? No, no, no. It was on your list. Um, this with Orson Welles, The Third Man. Third Man. Love. Th- third Man kind of took my breath away. I wish this was doing more Third Man stuff, where it kind of balanced the humor and the satisfaction of, of like, genre that comes with a genre picture with some emotional intensity. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, because this movie just kind of, it eschews emotional intensity for outward pleasure. Um, and I wanted it to kind of, I want, I want, sometimes I want it to be less pleasurable. Like the scene in the art scene, or uh, at, the, at the auction, that conversation that they have, it's like five minutes long. While they're like going through the auction, it's like, I don't need five minutes. <laughs> I don't need five minutes of him and Van Damme back and forth. Van Damme has a speech. In the middle of just like him kind of talking, and I'm just like, oh, I don't, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that thing. And that's where I kind of the North by Northwest thing. I think it's 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 so interesting. I, fi- I find this movie so maybe that's like the flip side of this is I find this movie like intensely interesting because it almost seems like it doesn't belong to any of the. Th- it seems like it's a, a total. I can see where you get from something like Strangers on a Train to this, but I don't necessarily see and maybe you can explain it to me like how you get from this to psycho because i think in a lot of ways psycho is more pleasurable to me than this movie is is that is that like a thing that can be that's can be true like is psycho inherently less pleasurable because of like its subject matter or because of like the way that like the manner in which it's it's made or like norman bates is just not roger thornhill like, Roger Thornhill is almost like pleasure incarnate, and everything that's happening in Psycho is not? No, I, I, I think it, they're equally as likely. Um, I think the thing that exists with directors like Hitchcock, um, and I can't think of other directors just off the top of my head, um, he's, he's very much a director who, like, 
when you got in tune with it. Maybe Billy Wilder. Billy, mm. Him and Billy Wilder are good examples. When you got in tune with what he's trying to do, it works. So, I mean, so this, like, for yeah. me, Billy Wilder... Um, well, I'm thinking of Strangers on the Train only, and I'm not thinking... I'm trying to think of the Tony Curtis Jack Lemmon movie. Something Like It Hot. Something Like It Hot. That movie doesn't work at all for me. me because I can't connect with it. Yep. I, I look at it, and I respect it. I'm like, this is a great film, but doesn't work at all. And I look at Double Indemnity, and I'm like, right there, mm. locking myself into it. Um, because I think, you know, they the those two directors especially... Uh, Frank Capra is probably another mm. one. Um, Frank Capra is a little more uh, sinewy, not sinewy, a little more grizzly in the fact that he has a lot more fat in his movies. But like, what, they have a control of tone and a mm. control of a sense of what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that when you're in tune with that, you're locked in. And I think it is just a matter of who is going into it. Psycho, yeah. I think, is great, but I'm a little more detached from Psycho because I'm not as in sync with wanting to experience the... Um, do, you want, do you want a piece of paper? This is paper. Okay. It just happens to be the <laughs> insert from a cassette. Got it. With, uh, uh, um, the emotionality of what that film's trying to do. I'm not as like in, in tune with that. I'm not in, as in tune... I mean, it's it's obviously less fun and everything, but I'm not as in tune with what it's doing as I am with this. And with this, and I think we've established on this list, is I have a lot of films that their sole point is fun. Die Hard, The Guest, um, yeah. Your Next Didn't Make My List, but it's there, Halloween. Um, but I would also say that you have a lot of movies. You come from a very classic film background, more so than I think you like talk about. Because I don't have, I don't have any Hitchcock. I got no Wilder. I got no Capra. I don't have a lot of like of those classic American filmmakers on my list because the movies that I grew up with, like when I was a kid, were like Disney shit. Because my mom watched all the movies, and my dad kind of. Gave me the music. So I grew up listening to, like, The Beatles and Crowded House and The Jam and, like, all these other, these, you know, great British and, you know, more Crowded House is New Zealand, doesn't matter. These kind of pop groups. Um, but my mom was showing me, like, Pollyanna and, like, Hello, Dolly. Yeah. And, and stuff like that. And, and so I gravitated towards this and this took me a while to get to. Well, and that's that's the same for me. It, in the inverse, like my mother, you know, as we talked about from a young age, you're just into Halloween. You know, that's kind of just an opening door. But Jane Eyre, Withering Heights, Withering Heights is another. My one. dad yeah. pushed me in with like Good and Bad, The Ugly. You know, films that were like a little older. Um, you know, something his Psycho was the one I saw. You know, earlier um, Rebecca. Mm. You know, films I saw early because. You know, like my parents would put on Turner classic movies just at times just to watch it. Yeah. Um, and then my music I listened to was like my dad listened to the Allman Brothers, and my mom would listen to like Journey and um, Def Leppard a lot. So like my introduction, my real push into music didn't start to like pandemic mm. really to really I really got into like oh I'm going to dwell deep into like what music really means to me because before then I had said to you. Music means nothing to me unless it's a unless it's tied to a movie. Mm. I mean, the reason like my favorite band still is Muse, 
And the reason it's my the, the way I was introduced to it was the um oh man, I can't remember the name of the movie right now. Unchained? Unhinged? It's the Jet Li Bob Hoskins two thousand four British film. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. I can actually see the poster for that, but I can't remember the name. Um, I own it on on DVD, but Apocalypse Please by Muse played in it. Mm -hmm. And, like, I listened to just that entire album, Absolution, and, like, I was just like, oh, this sounds like movie music. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being used in a ton of movies. Yeah. Like, Newborn, which is from the previous Origin of Symmetry, is used, like, in a chase scene in High Tension, a movie I like, because all their music... Music didn't mean anything to me mm-hmm. unless it worked for a movie. Mm. And that's why, like, when we talk about, like, where music works for me in film, I'm like, it works for me because it works in the scene. And so I came from, it like, in the... We're yin and yang, I guess, in that way. Yeah. Whereas, like... I don't know. I don't know if, like, you view films through that kind of lens of music. No. Still. Um, so, but, the, but, but I view music through that lens of film, and I, but I have such a deeper vocabulary with film from a young age and so when things worked like i think this is the first like really classic movie mm-hmm. that was defined to me as classic that i had a ton i had like no complaints about no moments where i got distracted as a little kid was never bored i was always having fun and for that reason it just like clung itself to me well and i think what i think this is like i think what you just said kind of rounds this out perfectly in the sense that one of the things I've talked about a lot is that I don't do things for fun. And I think one of the reasons I don't do things for fun anymore is because I went through this period, my growing up period, like my late teens, my maybe my mid mid to late teens, my early 20s, my mid 20s or whatever, um, when I was finding out who I was, I was watching a lot of movies. So I didn't have a lot of... There wasn't a lot of room in my life for pleasure from movies at that point because I was figuring some shit out. You know what I mean? Mm. Whereas in music, I never had I never had to burden music with figuring shit out. You know what I mean? So, like, I'll listen to stuff now. Like, my music taste has gotten, like, very narrow. And that, like, I really only listen to ambient music um, or, like... Uh, you know, guitar music or whatever. Yeah, music, like, weird like stuff. Max Richter and all that. Or? I don't even. I don't. I think Max Richter's doing too much. So I'm thinking of like Harold Budd pianos, like solo right. piano yeah, stuff. Yeah. I'm thinking of like Brian Eno, like loops that people have made no, on Brian Eno's maybe YouTube. too ambient for me. Um, but even stuff like like Grouper or um, Ju- this woman I just discovered, Judith Haman, who was like a cellist, but she has developed this thing where she just like vibrates her cello and she makes a sound out of it and so she just released this record called um uh, about what is it music first cello and humming where she's just like vibrating her cello and humming along to it and it's like that shit kind of is knocks me the fuck out um but i wouldn't go so far as to say that like it's i wouldn't put that record on my top 200 you know what I mean? But I get a lot of pleasure from it while understanding that it's not wrecking my life. Movies now, when I watch them, like, part of the part of the downside to the nine days conversation that, like, we'll inevitably have in late January, early February of next year is that um, I think it's one of the, it's probably the best movie that I've seen in, like, 
five years or whatever. But it's I've it's not we've talked about this on the podcast before. It's not kind of moving my needle personally because all the work that it's doing, it's I've already done. Which means it's probably the first movie I've watched in a long time. That's like a serious movie. That's like a good movie that I'm watching it and enjoying and kind of uh, marinating in just the pleasure of its existence. You know what I mean? Like when I sat back, when I texted you that picture of like we got this projector at home and I got a screener for the uh, Independent Spirit Awards and I put it on my projector and I had 10 feet of this movie like on the this blank wall that we have. We took a picture down that we hung up there and I was watching this movie. Um, and I was just, I, it was too late and I'm always tired now and I just watched the whole fucking thing and I just like, with this big fucking stupid smile on my face and I was just like, this is just moving me pleasurably. But honestly, if, if this is maybe one of the things that talk, the topics that we can kind of discuss. Like next week, forward, next week will definitely be the conversation for this. Sure. Um, if I was to put this movie on my list, it might be in like the 70s. Or, you know, and if I do some kind of soul searching about it maybe like the 60s maybe the 50s maybe because i've seen this movie so much maybe it like moves ahead of like shattered glass or something it pushes like a bunch of stuff back i don't know because this is not patriot games does it beat out patriot it definitely games? beats out patriot games but like does it beat out the throne of blood i don't know does it beat out jurassic park like i don't know jurassic park means a lot to me personally you know what i mean i have a lot of personal shit wrapped up in jurassic fucking park i got no personal shit wrapped up in nine days and that's kind of a bummer. I'm not used to that from a movie, but I'm also kind of like happy about it. You know what I mean? That's like, a, I, that's a, especially with what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. I'm happy to kind of just like be able to pull back from a film and be like, oh, I like that. And you have a lot of personal shit wrapped up in your one. Oh my God. Like, that's not even like really a thing. But like, I can, so I don't jive with North by Northwest just as like a movie because it's, you know, I think I like it. I, I like it a lot. But it doesn't mean anything to me. But I I think what I'm saying is that I get the idea that something like that could mean a lot to somebody. You know what I mean? A movie that when you watch it, you just get so like so much pleasure out of. And especially a movie is like a great thing for that because there's so many things happening. You know what I mean? There's the actors. There's the shots. There's the score. There's like, every, like the script. There's, you know, all these things are happening kind of all at the same time. North by Northwest, I get works on that works on that level. Um, but I also get like why it's not your number one. Well, I think you that's, know what I mean. I think that's interesting because I talk- think are we getting that? I, it's the thing. Like, I feel like we're getting to this place where we're switching spots. You know what I mean? Yeah. So my number one, and we'll talk about it. Is is right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this is a double episode. Jesus. Tom's spending the night. Um, my number for me, I am now allowing for the longest time. I saw film kind of as like pleasure, mm. and like it wasn't really a, a lot of the older movies I've seen. We, we, you know, a thing about this list is like mostly I've been saying like this movie works for me because I find it fun, or you know, it's just my appreciation of the Feels art. Feels good, yeah. And I think the two movies that are on my list. That started when this podcast started, or that were came out like a few years before it, um, like Phantom Thread or whatnot. Are starting? We're starting to do the work of like 
I now like understand, like I can state myself through a film. I can be like, you want to know what is what's it? It's like that Scrooge line, or blah blah. Like whatever you want here, you know. Like and um, in the sense, it's just like, oh, you want? I can't really express how I feel internally. So here's this. Yeah, for sure. And like my number one is that. It's just like this is how I feel about that particular sort of thing. And like but, I can't express it, but like here's that. And I love the fact that our number ones are going to be – we're going to have two conversations where you're going to say like this is the specific thing. This is how I feel about it. Here is – like watch it and you'll you'll get it. And if you don't get it, you don't get it. And what I'm going to say to somebody is that with my number one is – Listen to all of these, ep- like, look at my list, listen to all of these episodes, watch all of these movies, and then watch them again. And then maybe you'll kind of understand, like, like who I am as a, as a, as a guy. And I feel well, like... I think, so I think... Like, <coughs> oh, sorry. I'm gonna, I'm no, 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 no. I'm kind of... I was just going to vamp, so continue. What I think is interesting is... I think watching or listening to our list... Um, and I was going to ask this question of you, yeah, since yeah. this is my original number one. Um, I didn't ever got that this was your original number one. I didn't, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, you thought. Yeah, that's what I was going to lead into. Is like I know what you thought my original number one was going to be. Um, but for a similar reason, um, like looking at your number one, I'm like, it makes perfect sense to me. Like, mm-hmm. like everything builds to kind of that, and everything you've said, and I've said in many nights of State Street Cafe. Coming again soon. I'll go inside a bar soon. Wow. Um, Just to do it. Yeah. Um, like, that being your number one, I'd be like, yeah, of course that makes sense. Um, I guess my two-prong question... Well, no, the second prong we can leave for next week. Mm. But the first prong is, do you not see North... Like, was North by Northwest being my number one, like, a real surprise? Yeah. At the time, yeah, a yeah, real yeah, surprise yeah. to you? Or? Yeah, because you never talked about it. Yeah, I guess, so I guess I, you said that so many times. Huh, 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 huh. It's a little bit like your beer. And the way that, like, you just kind of held on to this idea for a really long time. And, like, we've gone out, we've drank lots of beers. And, again, I'm, I don't go out. I mean, you can't, you can't get that beer at any place. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but we've had lots of opportunities to drink together. And that beer has never really come up. Like, I never, I feel like I've maybe heard of it. And I, the only person I could have heard of it from is you. So maybe I was aware of it, but it wasn't the thing that you were like, you put down in front of me, you were like, you have to drink this. Yeah. It's my favorite beer of all time. Um, you know, we've had a million conversations about movies. and I, You originally thought my number one was going to be Die, Die Hard. Hard. I mean, because it was the movie that when we stopped and kind of talked about what our favorite thing was. I mean, it's still my favorite movie. Sure. And I think and we've kind of had this conversation a lot, too, is that like nothing can be, I can't have a pivotal film without it also being my favorite, because of what I just described. Because when I started getting hardcore into film, it was when I was start, starting to get hardcore into like becoming like whatever version of myself that I was going to end up with, which I maybe is this, which stinks. Being myself is the worst. Um, but like... So there's all this shit attached to all of my movies, you know what I mean? Like, and even, like, little stuff. Like, even, like, to go back to 100 with, you know, uh, the Ligeti 
dun, 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 like of eyes wide shut. Like when I first heard that shit, I was like, that's a thing. That's a thing I need. And as it turns out, it was a thing I need because now all the music that I listen to is just somebody hitting one key on a piano. Which key? Just, I don't know, like a, a black one. Is it a G? Definitely a black one. Um, <laughs> Like letting it ring and then hitting another key and then letting that ring out. It was like you asked me about Max Richter. Max Richter's doing too many things. It's just just too much stuff going on. I can't I can't do anything with that. And that's why like I love a movie that oh I don't want to talk about. Um So yeah, North by Northwest, I was just like I don't get it. Because it's not a movie that you ever mentioned. But like I guess seeing But I actually no, I'm gonna interrupt you. But seeing your list as a whole and looking at it as a whole and seeing what moves you. And I mean, I knew what moved you before. Like, we've had tons of conversations about Big Lebowski and film noir and, um, you know, genre stuff and all this other stuff. Um, is North by Northwest the most of those things? Probably. Probably is. It's the, right? the progenitor, too. And you got there before you saw a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So the new noir stuff that obviously came out after that, um, you didn't see The Big Lebowski before you saw North by Northwest. You weren't moved to see North by Northwest before you saw The Big Lebowski. You saw North by Northwest first. There's a North by Northwest, so you just talk about the credits. Um, there's tons of North by Northwest stuff involved in Die Hard 2. You know what I mean? Like the idea that John McClane doesn't have to do anything, but he's just like, I got to do something. And it's going to be very inconvenient for me. I mean, I definitely I, I saw Die Hard before I saw North by Northwest. But. No, no, no. But when you're kind of took, when you're looking at the totality of it, yeah, I get it. But at the time when you first showed me your like super heavily folded like two legal sheets, and I was just like North by Northwest. I'm like, what is this? Explain this to me. How is Die Hard not number one here? Um, it was probably for that reason. You know what I mean? And maybe that's too... Maybe Die Hard resists internalization. And something like North by Northwest like, is a little easier to kind of internalize. No, I don't, I don't internalize either film, honestly. No, I, just, I mean, not I, as a person, but just no. kind of like, like you know... Um, when, it, when you look at like how it branches out and touches yeah. like a lot of different things. Like, like. like Die Hard... Touches films that I like but don't love, whereas North by Northwest has its blueprint over a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, like I said, the fact that like some of the comedy has its blueprint in like a Zucker film in, in Naked sure. Gun. Oh, totally. Yeah, there's like a weird kind of like thirty percent of your list could be tied in some way to something that happened in North by Northwest, and it's either because it's also an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, or it's because it plays towards the humor or because it was influenced in its genre leanings or whatever. Um, for sure. That makes perfect sense now. No. There's a lot of tired, ultra-tan old men <laughs> hanging out in lots of movies. He seems so tired. He seems try, so I'm sleepy. Think, I'm trying to think of old, other tired old men I might have on my list. I don't know. I will go to and I'll go to nine days again. Is that like there's something I think there's something attached to so much sediment in the bottom of that beer? There Jesus. is. There, well, in this one, yeah. Oh, I thought yeah. you were talking about the other thing. Was no, like, that yeah, that said was pleasant. I like dosy though, but that was too much. Um, there's definitely something very tactile about my number. My number one is like tactile almost to a fault. But there's nine days is 
tactile as well. All that analog technology shit, you know what I mean, is meant to be, like, to feel hands-on. It's meant to feel handmade, even if it's not, like, handmade. Even yeah. if it's a television that you had in the 80s, it's meant to feel like it's somebody put their hands on it and put it there. I mean, it, most of that movie, not most of that movie, but a lot of that movie's him building stuff. So yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, is there a relationship to that? There might be. I hadn't thought of it until we just talked about it now. Um, but yeah, I mean, so we won't do A Block's new films. But we should definitely. I have. We have some ideas now. We could talk about them when we get sandwiches yeah. about what we can do. But no fries. No fries. I'm not. I don't even want fries today. Well, so you, they didn't have them last week. They didn't have them last week. But we're I gonna finish don't, earlier don't this week, so maybe they would have them. I don't want them. They'll waft out at you as we walk across the parking lot. Sometimes they hit me hard <laughs> and I have to resist. Um, but yeah, uh, if you want to talk about your tactile feeling of film, or what is the thing? It's not sediment. Whatever is at the bottom of the beer, that was just that hit hard. Sediment, is it? It's not called sediment. It's called something else. Tannins? That's wine, right? No, yeah. Does um, beer have Tannins? It does not. Oh, that just hurt. Back my, my kids throat. take a multivitamin, and um, I took it, and it's very sour, but it also has a lot of sediment in it. And um, I took it this morning, and the same thing happened to me, where like I, I threw it down like a shot. Yeah. And uh, it's like all settled right in my throat, and I was just like coughing for like an hour. Apparently, tannins are the thing that dries out your mouth when you drink wine, and why I think wine is disgusting. I don't like wine. I don't like when I drink something, and I'm like, why am I thirstier? I don't like wine because it's not delicious. I want it to be like I, I don't want to have to do work and maybe, <laughs> maybe this is pretend part of, to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to just want to fucking drink it and be like, mm, good. And my neck is looser now. Yeah, moving on. It's unfortunate. If you think wine's unfortunate, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal, or you can go to Pivotal Film. Uh, you can email us at pivotalpodcast at gmail Has anybody ever emailed us? I mean, a bunch of spam sites have. So we do get a lot some, of spam. Some bot has listened to this episode and yes. picked up the email. Uh, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com. And the New Yorker sends us 10,000 emails because you registered with Pivotal Film Podcast. I did. I got a free. They, I got a free they, just, they send us so many emails. They do. They send me a lot of emails from like my actual subscriptions. Oh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, pivotalfilm.com. See a list of the beers that we drank and uh, the movies on our pivotal film list. And I will try to update that tomorrow. I'm kind of taking a stand against doing work at my job. So I'm, I'll do that as a protest. I listened Sounds to you know, four hours of an audiobook today. Although you're basically doing curation work, which is like a library work. Yeah, if I was doing my library podcast now, I could probably um, spend, I could probably spin that more, but I'm not. Because nobody listens to it. So I was just like, I'm not going to do it. Fair enough. But I also, I let them to stop paying me specifically for the podcast. So, conflict of interests. But yeah. Um, next week, restart the end. Don't watch any movies next week. Watch other stuff. Come in fresh. Watch Res- WrestleMania? Is that Maybe next week? The, 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 I feel like it's always WrestleMania. It's on Saturday and Sunday. Don't watch WrestleMania. Don't support WWE. It's on two days. Two days now. Mario, why? Because they wanted to make it shorter. What? It used to be like it got up to be like eight hours long, so they made what? Them two, three hour shows. And it's the first time with fan it's the first show with fans in over a year. Is it in Florida? Yeah. Tampa Bay. Only twenty five thousand fans though. <laughs> in a football stadium? Yeah. Oh, I guess that's not, that's 
fine-ish. Yeah, it's like one fourth, like one third capacity, though. Not Doesn't so that make you sad? We just take an off. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about this off there. Until then, um, watch something that isn't uh, cinematic. Yeah, I don't know why. Go don't, find don't some OEC beers. Drink those up and email us and tell us what you think. Even if you live in Arizona, just just find them. Just get it. Yeah. You think you get it? You get it. You get it. You import it. Doug Douchey's not going to stop you. Who's Doug Douchey? The governor. This is his name? Yeah. This is really? Yeah. Doug Douchey? Makes sense, right? Oh, man. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. <laughs>